0: And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Fifty years ago today in rural New York State, a music festival called Woodstock was happening and in a sense turning the world on its ear. It's an incredibly important story and an incredibly important moment in our recent history. And we're going to be looking back half a century with two different women who visited Woodstock and we're going to begin with someone who is originally from La Crosse Wisconsin but now makes her home in Dallas Texas her name is Susie Burns she has a niece who uh, is on the staff at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and she caught wind of my interest in doing some interviews with people who actually attended Woodstock and uh, she took the initiative of contacting uh, her her aunt who was happy to have uh, yet another opportunity to talk about her experience at Woodstock. So uh, I'm very, very happy via the telephone to be speaking with Susie Burns. Susie Burns, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you, Greg. I'm happy to be here.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, What do you do in Dallas, Texas?
1: Well, I've owned my own business for 30 years. Uh, we make monogram wedding books and baby books for people all over the world.
0: Oh, that sounds like fun! That sounds really interesting. That's great. It's uh,
1: called Way Cool Designs.
0: Wonderful Way Cool Designs. And you were mentioning before we went on the air that that was it. Your mother that was actually on the on the radio in La Crosse for many years.
1: Yes, Elma Burns had a radio show for. Nineteen years called Party Line in La Crosse, Wisconsin.
0: So you are following in her footsteps today. So, yeah,
1: uh, I am, finally. She always wanted me to.
0: Very good. I'm,
1: here.
0: I'm very, very happy to have this conversation with you. Let's begin by just looking back 50 years and looking at you. Where were you, and in a sense, who were you, uh, in August of 1969, where were you living at that point? How old were you and what kind of a young person were you at that point?
1: Well, Greg, I'll go back a little further. I, uh, I was 19 in lacrosse and bored with school, shame on me, and uh, got a tax return and bought a one-way ticket to New York because I had friends there. And so I was in New York that whole summer prior to Woodstock. Mm. And uh, a friend in the neighborhood lived in Brooklyn, and a friend in the neighborhood said, hey, I got these tickets for a rock festival, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 15th, 16th, 17th, um, and 18th. But that wasn't scheduled. It was just a three-day festival. And he bought five tickets for all of us that were going to go. And that's how we got to Woodstock. And we went not on the Friday. We went on the Monday before.
0: Mm. I've heard about uh, quite a number of people who made an early pilgrimage, and we'll yep. talk about that in just a second. Sure. Tell us a little more about what was important to you at, that summer 50 years ago before you even went to Woodstock in terms of uh, what, what were the sort of pressing issues on your mind? What 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 kind of a young person were you? I guess it's a roundabout way of asking if you at that point in time would have counted yourself among the counterculture of that uh, of that day.
1: You mean a hippie?
0: <laughs> right, there we go. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't I don't mind being defined by that because it means peace and love to me then and now.
0: Mhm.
1: So, I guess that would define me quite clearly for all these years.
0: And, and, that's, and that's who you were. You didn't become that at Woodstock. You were already seeing the world through, through those eyes, in a sense.
1: Yes, I literally had rose-colored glasses.
0: <laughs> Very good. So uh, tell us a bit about this circle of friends and the journey which, together, you made uh, to uh, rural New York State. What, what was that trip like?
1: Well, not to bore you with all my stories, but I had a friend uh, that we usually saw on weekends. He lived on, um, his parents had a cottage or a home on Fire Island, and he had a Land Rover. So he volunteered to drive us there because it would contain more passengers. So his name was Johnny. I don't remember his last name. And he drove us there, and we knew we were going to go on Monday, We had taken off work, and everything was ready. Honestly, it was the last thing I did before moving back home to La Crosse. Mm. So it was just a little concert that I was going to see before I left, and I had been going to concerts that whole summer in the park and everywhere.
0: That's one thing that was mentioned in an American Experience documentary that just aired about Woodstock, is that this was an era uh, in which free concerts were plentiful, although nothing of the scale of Woodstock was all that common, that's for right. sure. But but, uh, uh, but it sounds like you were very much part of that uh, whole scene. Yes. So, um, w- was there any particular reason why you and your friends went up as early as you did, the Monday before all of this was scheduled to start? I mean, did anything yes. in particular prompt you to do that?
1: Um, yeah, we wanted to be the first ones there. We wanted to maybe help with um, any of the getting ready for the uh, entertainers. We wanted to be part of it. So that's the reason we went on Monday. Uh, this Johnny that I'm talking about that drove us there, he ended up building the stage with other people.
0: Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I didn't see him at all.
0: Once you got there.
1: Yeah. He came in to sleep. We had, uh, I think, like a 12-man tent. And... Um, In our campsite, we were the first ones there, obviously, and his Land Rover uh, made a path through the weeds to get to the front of Filipino Pond. So we parked the tent right there.
0: Right next to the pond.
1: Right in front of it. Mm -hmm. And um, as the week rolled on, there were two other people that joined our tent site a real big tent, and then a smaller tent. So we were the medium size.
0: And do you literally mean that you were the first people yep. who got to the to the grounds of Woodstock, at least as far oh, as you no, could tell?
1: No, we weren't. Greg, we weren't the very first, but in our position, in our campsite, no one else was around. Gotcha. It was Monday. Right. The concert started on Friday. Right.
0: How many people would you say had come to Woodstock as early as you had on that Monday? Are we talking about a few dozen, a couple hundred? I mean, ultimately, of course, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who came to Woodstock, but what was it like? How crowded was it on Monday?
1: It wasn't very crowded. There were mostly promoters. And then there was a group that was across the pond. It's not a big pond. And they brought speakers. And so we had music broadcasting over the speakers to our tent. From day one. Wow! Well, I think they got there on day two, actually. Okay. They got there on Tuesday. Yeah.
0: So, how did you spend your time between oh, m- between Monday and Friday, the, when when the festival actually got underway?
1: It was really fun, Greg, because we'd walk around. If you go up in back of our tents, there was a little walkway that led you to a creek where most people. Well, not so much bathed, but just um, enjoyed the water, and it was kind of a babbling brook. And uh, So it was kind of a meeting place, you know, meet you by the creek. So we went up there, went up and watched as the people came in. There was a a group called the Hog Farm. They were people that uh, set up their huge tent and gave food to people that didn't have food, and they were just the helpers of part of the promotion team, and they go around to other festivals and help um, where help is needed, medical, food-wise, like that. So they were one of the first organizations that I met. And then just as the week went on, more and more people came, uh, especially concertgoers, and they filled up our road. So it was pretty fun to be the first ones there and then to watch each day as it got thicker and thicker and thicker. And, of course, we didn't leave until the last day. Well, actually it was Monday is when Jimi Hendrix played. Um, but we didn't leave till after that. So we, we were there the whole time. We didn't go out and see all the traffic that had filled up all the roads. And then I, I met my family in Winston-Salem, um, and then flew home with them. But uh, they said that in the paper that was a disaster area, and it was filthy and um, really undesirable, and I was so surprised because it was heaven to me. Mm. Beautiful. R- right. The rain didn't bother us. The lack of food, I mean, there was a lack of food at the very end. But I'm kind of skipping ahead. I'll let you ask the question.
0: (laughs) No problem. But, no, it sounds like one of the best decisions you made was to get there as early as you did. For as much as it seemed to kind of catch the uh, organizers of the event by surprise that so many people began streaming in early, the fact is you ended up beating that terrible, tangled uh, traffic jam that that occurred that really made getting to Woodstock at the end uh, all but impossible.
1: Yeah, that's why they stopped taking tickets because it was uncontrollable. I mean, there were massive people on all the roads. They parked the cars cars in the road or whatever they were driving um, because they couldn't go any further and they had to walk in. But I didn't know any of that until afterwards.
0: So you were just on the idyllic grounds where everything was, was lovely. It also sounds like you came better prepared than some people who came to Woodstock with Little more than the the clothes on their back, and, yeah. and sometimes little, and or maybe hardly any money at all. Right. And it sounds like you were prepared for this.
1: You didn't really need money. Um, a lot of things were free, and there were uh, there was facilities all over that offered anything that you needed. Medical care. Babies were born at Woodstock. I met one once, and. In my line of work, I actually met someone that was born in, at Woodstock. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> she was the daughter of someone I was doing a, a booth with.
0: Hmm. Yep. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with Susie Burns, originally from La Crosse, Wisconsin, but now making her home in Dallas, Texas. And thanks to her niece, who is on the staff at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, I am connecting with Susie Burns on today's morning show to hear her recollections about attending Woodstock 50 years ago. And so today actually marks, to the day, the 50th anniversary of the middle day of the official three days of Woodstock, which occurred on uh, August 15th, 16th, and 17th, uh, 1969, with uh, things blurring over into uh, the 18th uh, due to a number of different uh, delays and 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 interruptions. So we are exactly in the midst of the 50th anniversary of Woodstock as we have this conversation today. Um, so Susie Burns, before we start talking about the music that you heard, mm-hmm. um, I, I would love to hear any interesting stories that you have about the experience of Woodstock Apart from the music itself, uh,
1: right. Well, Greg, before the music started, um, which was Friday night, um, we were getting set up in our tent and welcoming other people. We didn't say no to anybody, but it cut. It was we were filled up after the two other tents arrived and planted their tents. So we were situated with this three tent area right on the point of Filipino Pond one of the first memories was hilarious. This guy, so the, so the opening of the tent, the way you go in and out, faced the pond. So on the other side is a window. So this guy came across through the window and went, knock, 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 like pretending to knock on the door. And I went, yeah? And he says, do you have any extra birth control pills? Which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Typical for Woodstock, I guess.
0: Right, not a cup of sugar. He, uh, he right. needed something else. <laughs> yeah.
1: Another funny story while we were setting up is, uh, as I said, Johnny, who drove us there, he was gone setting up the stage with other helpers, and he brought—they must have found a raccoon there. They did find a raccoon there, and he put a leash on it and brought it back to the tent site and tied it up to a tree, a tree stump, actually. So that was okay. It was a friendly enough raccoon. But the very funny thing about that was uh, a guy walked through with a guitar, strapped across his back, saw the raccoon, sat down on a neighboring tree stump, and sang Rocky Raccoon mm. by the Beatles.
0: <laughs> Only it Woodstock. That was pretty memorable. Right. Well, I, sh- I should think. I should think. Yeah. By the time the festival started, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people uh, on the site. Just compare for us what it felt like to be there early on when hardly anybody was there and nothing had really started yet versus on that Friday when, when the start is approaching and you are suddenly in the middle of a sea of humanity. What did that yeah. feel like?
1: Well, I don't. I think it progressed more after Friday. I mean, uh, we were still pretty contained by Friday. You could walk. There was a place to get out of our tent area, walk up this sidewalk. It was on. As you're facing the stage, it would be on the left side of the stage. So we walked up that little walkway, gravel road, if you have it. And um, we could go to the stage area on that side. I really was never on the other side because it was way too convenient for us. I got up on stage. I met a guy that had a press hat, a top hat that said press on it. And he got me behind stage, and I met a lot. So it was pretty cool. As the week went on, as the weekend went on, there were more and more and more people. So we knew what was happening. Hmm.
0: So what was there to eat at Woodstock? I mean, did you have food along with you, or were you eating what was being provided on site, and what kind of food are we talking about?
1: Well, we all took sandwiches and fruit. Um, You know, we had coolers, and everybody had bottles of wine. I remember the, I don't even know the name of it, but the kind that's in cork or is wrapped. Those were very typical bottles of wine because I guess it kept it cooler. Um, I really didn't drink that much, so I we didn't we didn't take any beverage other than water and food. Um, and our food ran out probably well, I'd have to say maybe Saturday, but up at the hog farm, you could get any kind of food anytime, and they ran out the very last day mm. Tell- so. When we drove away, people gave us food in cars, Hmm. townspeople, added sandwiches for us.
0: Wow. There are some really gratifying stories about that that I think are a really nice addendum to the story of Woodstock. Uh, Tell our listeners who aren't acquainted with the hog farm what that was and what that meant to Woodstock.
1: Well, it was just an organization of volunteers that gave up their time and made sure people's needs were met. I mean, it's that simple. Um, I
0: they, believe I, they were from a commune from another part of the country, I think.
1: Yeah, yes, yes, indeed. And um, everybody made such a big deal of it that I went to see it, but we did, we had our own food. So um, I didn't really need any of their food. And it, honestly, I was I was 20 by that time. I had turned 20 the June before, that August. So... Um, I don't know. You can go a long time without food. If you're bombarded with all these fantastic venues or artists, You, you know, your focus isn't food.
0: Right. It's not so, like you're sitting around thinking about being hungry. You are, no. in a sense, too busy taking in all kinds of well, <laughs> stimulation. When you, of-
1: walk, when you walk through the crowd, you're walking through people's little homes, and they always offer whatever they have. It was truly the summer of peace and love. I, I don't want to veer away from that at all.
0: Hmm. Tell us how much you ended up meeting complete strangers. I mean, uh, how how important a, a facet of Woodstock was that, the, the, the meeting of, of, in a sense, new friends?
1: <laughs> oh, I'm taken back by that, because pretty much my whole days were filled with strangers because you meet people every place you walked. I did, however, um, revisit people that I met in New York, where I worked and where I socialized. Everybody was there, which I was kind of surprised with. The only one that I didn't re-meet at Woodstock was my boss, an older man. But everyone else who I worked with, my neighbors in uh, Brooklyn and people that I worked with, uh, and people that I socialized with, I saw them all at Woodstock, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of ironic because I was just going to a concert on my way out of town.
0: <laughs> and it turned out to be so much more than that. Let's talk yeah. about the concert. And, of course, it is an astonishing array of musicians who are on the yeah. bill for, for, for Woodstock.
1: Well, there was a few hiccups getting started because they definitely had trouble with the the towers uh, first of all, people kept climbing them, and that's unsafe. And they were worried about the safety, so they were trying to get everybody off the
0: towers. Right. And I also understand that that the as as all of those roads became so tangled with traffic, that it became all but impossible for the musicians to get to Woodstock. Yeah, uh, they and so, helicoptered in. Right, because that ended up being a a really serious issue that uh, apparently had not been anticipated. So right.
1: Well, a lot of people knew what they were coming into just because it had already formed, because Mm. of people like me that went there early. Right. I think, um, I don't know how the Jefferson Airplane got there, I I think by helicopter, but I I know that my roommate (laughs) um, left because he said he was the bass player for Jefferson Airplane, looked just like him. And the helicopter took him to New York, and then he flew home. Hello, uh-huh. Cross.
0: There you go. <laughs> so, as you look back on the music you experienced at Woodstock, yep. what are some of the high points that really stand out for you?
1: Well, uh, Richie Haven started out. Like I said, it was hours after the startup time. So on the first day, it was um, it was Richie Havens. Oh my gosh, it was uh, Janis Joplin. Um, Grateful Dead, John Sebastian, I can't remember everybody. Can't Heat, Joe McDonald. Um, it was it was a lot of people. Joan Baez finished the night out, and we were mesmerized. We were just, what is happening? It was amazing. Hmm. I just it,
0: I just read recently that she was six months pregnant at the time that she performed at yeah, Woodstock. Yeah, we didn't know that though. Right. right. Yeah. So it, it began in a little more of kind of a folk slant and then turned into a little different style oh, uh, yeah. on Saturday. Were you there? Oh, Richie, for- H-
1: Richie Havens was rocking out. I mean, he, I, don't, I don't really consider him folk, although Sweetwater and some of the other Burt Summer, uh, s- some people were definitely more of the um, folk Country Joe and the fish, but they were they crossed over. I mean, after him was after them was Santana. so the, I used to see Santana in Brooklyn and Prospect Park every Sunday It was a free concert mm. so santana is is New York,
0: mm. so so do you have a favorite musical moment from Woodstock?
1: Gosh, they were all favorite moments, Mm. but yeah, I do. It was Jimi Hendrix because he played on, I'm skipping over day two and day three, but he played on the fourth day on Sunday, and uh, he was the only performer on Sunday, or I'm sorry, Monday.
0: Monday morning,
1: Um, yep. And we all stayed over, and a lot of people left, and the grounds were starting to look deteriorated because so many people were there, There was a lot of trash, and it had rained so much. But the diehard people, such as myself, stayed through Monday. And uh, Jimi Hendrix had a hard summer before that because he wasn't appearing for all of his concert dates. And we were all wondering what was going to happen that Monday morning. And he came out in a red, white, and blue fringe jacket, really long fringe, And you know the song he played, the Star Single (laughs) Banner. And everybody just, you know, if they were tired, if they were hungry, if they were whatever, they just came to alert. I mean, they were awoke (laughs) because his performance was brilliant.
0: Mm. And it's 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 so great because in, in other words, this did not uh, end with a whimper. It ended with a bang, an exciting a total bang. bang. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you judge the people around you in terms of how they were taking in this music? In that, because sometimes when music is performed in the open air, um, people are treating it almost like it's just one more thing to enjoy, almost in the background. Uh, but I suspect for a lot of you at Woodstock the music mattered the most, and you were taking it in uh, with, with, with great appreciation and attentiveness.
1: Yes, and that was true most of the case. I mean, there were some times when I would walk away, I hate to even admit this, but I was trying to catch a little nap when Janis Joplin was singing, <laughs> and she was literally <laughs> screaming, you know, the <laughs> way she sings. So yeah, there, there was music all through the night till like three or four in the morning. There was very little downtime of music, and then they'd start up as soon as they could, mm. as soon as they were awake. Mm. The uh, Creedence Clearwater started revival started day two, and then the Who, Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker. It was yeah, ten years after it was it was performance after performance there was a lot of other acts in between that we didn't know would be there they weren't really billed but they thought well i got a guitar i got a band i'm gonna come and get on and everybody was so relaxed that they let them go maybe play during a a big setup Hmm. and there was always notifications going on There was a guy talking on the speaker or on the microphone on the stage about certain acids that were bad, um, certain things that the crowd should know, like um, that there was a medical tent set up if anybody was having a bad time or just regular announcements between every single act Hmm. for everybody. Just making sure
0: people had information that was important to know. Yep, Yeah. Um, so once Jimi Hendrix finishes out his set, which was, in a sense, the end to Woodstock, how much longer did you stick around, or at that point was it time to head home?
1: That was the day that I headed home. But to head home, I mean, everything was coagulated. You couldn't get down the street, so we didn't get very far. I had one girlfriend in New York that had a convertible, and we always... Whenever we needed a car, that's, that was our transportation, and she, uh, she took me away. Uh, we were taking two guys up to Canada and going to the expo up there, and then she drove me to Buffalo or Boston, a B-town, and then I flew to Winston-Salem where my parents were, hmm. and my sister was living there. Right. And then I flew home. With the family,
0: so how worried were your parents uh, during Woodstock as they watched uh, what I would assume would be reports on yeah. newscasts about what was going on there? Were they worried uh, for your safety?
1: I, I, if they were, they um, they really didn't let me know. Uh, I did come away from Woodstock with a little dysentery. It, it wasn't horrible, and uh, my sister's husband was a doctor, and he gave me some goop, and it went away in a day, but it was just, you know, probably dirty food, or, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was the cleanest conditions, especially after the rain. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but they weren't that worried about me. They know I'm pretty, um, have a lot of resolve and can get through things. So right.
0: They, and it probably helped, they probably appreciated the fact that you weren't there by yourself. You were there right. with... With some close friends and a whole lot of other friends you ended up meeting. Yeah. So when you look back 50 years over Woodstock, Mm -hmm. what do you think it means to you? I mean, what is the big carry? What do you carry away from the experience of having been at Woodstock?
1: Peace and love.
0: Hmm.
1: Completely. When Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young got up on stage... That was like my second favorite moment, and because I had seen them. They broke up certain bands and started new bands, and I'd seen them all that summer in New York with the starting of new bands and breaking up of new bands. So they were just young and fickle. and uh, But when they played, oh, my gosh, they were so great. But when I walked through and, and met people, everyone was so... Uh, welcoming and offering whatever they had and it was it was amazing I mean if that moment could carry on into the today's world it would be a different world Hmm. yeah it was beautiful
0: Hmm. so well said Susie Burns recounting her experiences of being at Woodstock 50 years ago today Susie Burns, I so appreciate you taking the time out of a busy schedule to uh, to share your, your memories uh, with us uh, on today's morning show. I thank you so much and wish you well.
1: Thank you, Greg. Same to you.
0: You're listening to The Morning Show on WgtdHD your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. And for this portion of WGTD's morning show, I am happy to be in Ivanhoe's in downtown Racine and sitting opposite somebody that I have just met by the name of Lynn Van Imeren. And she happens to be a friend of a Facebook friend of mine, Mark Pathrath. And when Mark knew that I was interested in talking to some people who attended Woodstock he suggested that I contact Lynn Van Imeren, uh, which I have done. And so we are meeting in uh, Ivan to have a conversation and uh, have her answer a couple of questions about her experience attending Woodstock 50 years ago this summer. Lynn Van Imeren, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks. Glad you are willing to, to do this. Uh, first of all, where were you and who were you back in the summer uh, of 1969?
2: I lived in New Jersey. Uh, I was born in Racine, but I lived in New Jersey in the summer of 69. I had gone to high school at Fort Lee High School in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And um I was eighteen years old and living with my mother, spending my last summer there before I came back to
0: Wisconsin to go to college. Hmm. Would you be someone did you think of yourself at the time as part of what we call the counterculture of that of that era? Or were you were your interests and opinions sort of along that line?
2: Yes they were. Um I uh went to a lot of B ins and peace marches and things like that in New York. Um, Fort Lee, New Jersey, is right across the George Washington Bridge from New York City, so it was just a hop, skip, and a jump to get into New York City. Um, and I often went into New York City for all kinds of things, shopping, um, looking for bookstores, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I would say so. I, I, it was, it was just becoming popular at, the, at that time. Um, And I'd probably been like I really liked folk music, and um, so probably for a few years I'd, you know, sort of been in that frame
0: of mind. Sure. Do you remember when and exactly how you first heard about Woodstock, and what about it prompted you to want to go?
2: Um my friend Debbie and I had wanted to see Crosby, Stills and Nash and heard they were going to be playing um, in the village Um, and so we went down to Fillmore East where they were supposed to be playing to buy tickets and they told us that they had that Crosby, Stills and Nash had Rescheduled and wouldn't be playing until I think it was October or some sometime. By then, Debbie and I were both going to have gone our own ways off to college. And so we were lamenting that fact in front of the ticket counter. And um, the lady said, Well, they're going to be up at Wood, you know, Crosby Stills and, Nash, and Young are, Young wasn't with them yet. Crosby Stills and Nash are going to be up at uh, Woodstock. And we were like, what's that mean? You know. And she said, well, there's going to be outdoor festival and they're going to be playing there. Um, so she said you could go up there. That's going to be happening in August yet before you leave. And so we went and had a little conference together, Debbie and I, and decided, yeah, we would do that. And we bought tickets right then for Woodstock, for just for two days, Saturday and Sunday.
0: And I should mention that you still have those tickets and showed them to me right before we began the interview. And isn't it strange to think about a time when somebody would say the word Woodstock and it wouldn't mean anything to you? I mean, now even people who aren't into any of this know the name Woodstock, but not necessarily in the summer of 1969. Yeah, that's correct. So how did you get yourself to Woodstock? What can you tell us about your journey there? Well,
2: Debbie had a car, an old Rambler. We were going to drive up to Woodstock in her car. Um, Then I ran into some other people that I knew vaguely, and they wanted me to go up on Friday with them. And so I said I would go up on Friday night with them. And then um, Debbie and I had gone a week or two in advance to see where this place was that we were going to be going to for the concert. We drove up there. Um, they were it was just a big field then, and they were setting up the stage and things and we looked around and all that and there was a big crossroads right there. Um, and um, So I went up with the other people and then I told Debbie that I would meet her noon on Saturday at the crossroads. And that's the way it worked out, amazingly somehow we found each other at the crosswords on, crossroads on Saturday.
0: In the in the midst of that mass of humanity, hundreds uh, yes. of thousands of people. Yeah,
2: because when we got up there Friday night, um, the, the fences were all down, and I was thinking I was going to have to buy another ticket. The fences were down, and nobody was using tickets at all, right. so you just stuffed them back in your bag or whatever and went in. Right. And, um uh... the people that i was with found that they had brought a tent so they found a, a campsite and set up there and and um, we started we got the tent out and they just sort of laid it out and we're trying to figure out how to set it up and then some other people came and said hey man there's a bonfire over here and passing joints around and <laughs> so they all we all went off but then i i sat there for a short time and then i said you know what we're not going to get that tent set up tonight unless I go set that tent up. And I had never set a tent up in my life. So I went and set, uh, set up the tent. Some other kind spirit came along and helped me set the tent up. And then after I got it set up, I just crawled in and went to sleep.
0: <laughs> Don't blame you, babe. So what, is your, what are your most potent memories of Woodstock apart from the music? It was the music, of course, and especially Crosby, Stills, and Nash that brought you there or drew you there. But before we get to talking about the music you heard and experienced there. Uh, What are your other potent memories of what it was like to be at Woodstock?
2: Well, that I had never seen so many people in one spot in my life before. (laughs) There were a lot of people there, and really, you couldn't move around much. If you left where you were, you weren't getting back to that spot. Mm. (laughs) And um, it was really pretty overwhelming. Um, I'm not a big person that deals well in crowds so it was really kind of scary to be with that have that many people around and be s- smacked down in the middle of it you know? Right.
0: you my understanding is that at its peak there were nearly four hundred thousand people there i mean although i am sure it's impossible to know absolutely for certain uh, yeah it, it was
2: very crowded and like i said once you were in a spot it was hard to leave unless your whole group was leaving because you were never going to find them again
0: So you were with a friend um, how much did you end up talking I mean you were with this other group of people that you did not know very well at the at the outset once your friend was there were you still connecting with people that you didn't know or was it mostly an experience you were kind of experiencing yourself
2: well it was mostly something I was experiencing myself but I was with Debbie and she had brought some friends of hers that I didn't know they were from mm-hmm. out of town I didn't know them they didn't know me um, so I knew Debbie um, over the period of a couple days I um, um, saw other people from my high school that I knew. I saw Henry and Gary and Warren and um, Laura and, you know, just bumping into people. Um, but uh, that was just accidental. Basically, I was just with the people I was with. And, you know, you chat a little with the people who were sitting around you, um, share food if people had food they were sharing, because it was like there were there was food there to be purchased. But again, you would have to lo- leave your spot and never find your way back. So like if one person said, I'll go get some food or some water, you were never going to see him again. <laughs> <Yes,
0: exactly. laughs> okay. <You know? laughs> can't so, I, uh, Understand, I mean, Woodstock is often described as a a scene that was somewhat chaotic, in that there were so many more people than they were prepared for. So, when it came to matters like latrines and food and security and so on, it was it was not an easy situation. That being said, it was apparently an incredibly tranquil. Peaceful experience, even with all of those people. It's, it's it was loud. a very
2: nice crowd, very nice crowd, very peaceful crowd. Um, nobody wanted trouble. I imagine a lot of them were high. I didn't happen to be one of them because I thought I'll never cope with this number of people <laughs> if I am not in command of my my faculties. Right, you know, right. um, if I'm not in complete control of myself. So um, there were a lot of people just all around. There, you know they were right next to you and right in front of you and right in back of you and at some point during during the concert and i don't remember exactly when there were helicopters flying real low over us and dropping flowers i think they were military helicopters but i'm no expert but i remember they it seemed to me they were drab green or that olive green color and that the people that were throwing the flowers down were guys who were dressed in that color also hmm. so whoever they were i remember them dropping flowers all around us wow.
0: So, um, before I ask you some of your most powerful memories of the music you experienced at Woodstock, what was the crowd like in terms of its attentiveness? Sometimes when we go to venues that are featured music being played in the open air, uh, people are not attentive in quite the same way that they are if, for instance, they're sitting in a concert hall or seeing a Broadway show or something. I mean, when you're outside, sometimes your, your attention is put in all kinds of different places. Were you and the people around you really focused on what was happening on that stage? Uh,
2: to some extent, but you know there were a lot of people who were, I think, pretty out of it, and um, you, you. We weren't sitting real close. We were probably a little towards the front, but in the middle. Um, but there were a lot. People went way, way, way back from where we were, so we didn't have terrible spots. We could see the stage and the performers on it. You couldn't see them clearly. Um, people were focused on the music. They would dance. And, you know, if they knew some of the music, they might go along with it. But they were all very mellow. They were all very mellow.
0: (laughs) So, you were there most specifically to see Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But, of course, they were just one of a whole number of acts that you got to experience there. So, first of all, were they one of the high points for you?
2: I never got to see them. I think they played the last night. I think we had gone by then. Oh, no! (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> the irony of it.
0: No kidding. Well, uh, I hope there were other high points, nevertheless. Uh, what the stands whole thing out? was was really
2: an experience. If I had known what it was going to be like, I very likely would not have gone. But being there, and you just you just got to go with it, you know. Um, just being and listening to the good music and having that good vibe around you of all the people who were really, really very peaceful and very in tune with what was happening, um, was nice. Um, there were, a lot of the music I really liked, you know, Richie Havens played, um, Country Joe. Country Joe, I think, played quite a few times. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh Tim Harden, I believe was uh, played and um, the incredible string band who's yep. really they're on my playlist I have a song by them <laughs> um, there were just a lot, it was the music was fabulous um, there's not much you could say about it except that it was really fabulous um, there were long periods in between sets often because there were all, so many people around and then having to bring in change equipment around sure. but um... Everybody just sort of chilled,
0: you know. It was it was nice. Do you recall the musicians speaking very much from the stage? I mean, in a way that would be out of the ordinary. I mean, obviously, in, in most cases, uh, you introduced the next song. But do you recall the musicians saying a lot in terms
2: of maybe Country more Joe political did. content? Country Joe did. Country Joe, um, several times, I think, um, when there were lulls, would go up and... and talk to the crowd and um I, I don't remember what he said, but I know he was up there quite often talking to people about peace and love and you know, um, things like that. Um, maybe just trying to keep the tenor of the group down which it was a very peaceful group, it really was Were you there when it rained? oh yeah I was there when it rained I still have my sandals that were full of mud someplace in my house (laughs) they don't have mud on them anymore but yeah you just walked in it you'd be walking across because I was in sandals and bare feet and you'd be walking across things and it would feel really funny and you'd think why does it feel so awful and then you'd realize it was a blanket underneath all that mud that you were stepping on you know it was yeah the rain was not any fun
0: um... Was it hard to leave when it was time for you
2: to leave? Um, (laughs) Yeah, but what happened with us leaving is that on Sunday at some point, um, one of the women, girls who was with us, um, one of Debbie's friends, needed to use the porta-potties. And nobody wanted to get up and go with her. And that made it kind of... Harry because she was a very timid girl and I knew she couldn't go on you know, I knew she would never make her way back, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that she shouldn't be alone so when oh, nobody else volunteered I said I would go with her and um, we went we went <laughs> and and then uh, we of course could not find our way back to the group we were with so we were just wandering around and this, this girl, I don't even know what her name was or remember her name, um she was real upset because we couldn't find the group and she was crying and crying and I was trying to calm her down and various people kept coming up to us and putting their arms around us and trying to get us to go to the hog farm and I kept looking at them and saying no we're not having a bad trip we just <laughs> lost our friends and we're just we're okay except that we can't find our friends and we're not likely to find our friends you know and um, she was very very upset that happened several times people just kept coming up thinking when they saw us walking wandering around crying this girl's crying that something we were having a bad trip or something Mm, and we weren't on anything you know Mm. um so uh eventually as night came and it got later i said you know i just said to her why don't we just she was so worried that debbie would leave without us or that Uh we'd never find her i said why don't we just walk to the car we know where the car is let's go to the car and we'll wait by the car if Debbie's already wondering where we are, she might even be at the car. Otherwise, we'll just wait by the car. So, late Sunday night, like I mean, late late. Um, that's what we did. We just walked back to where the car was, um, and just sat by the car and waited. It was a few hours before Debbie and her the other friends showed up. Um, but that was basically how we found them again: is
0: going back to the car. <laughs> so you said something interesting that. If you had known what this experience was going to be like, you maybe would not have gone. Uh, if, if I did, I quote you correctly. Yeah, for
2: one thing, if my mother had known what it was, she would not have let me go.
0: <laughs> there you go. That being said, I I can just kind of tell from the way you're talking that it's not that you regret that you went to to Woodstock. No. What are what are what are the things you are most grateful for in terms of the fact that you did go to Woodstock? What what does it mean to you fifty years later?
2: You know, I, I just view everything that happens in life, whether it's good or it's bad or whatever, it's all it all goes into the makeup of who you are today. And so it was just a learning experience, and it was. Uh, it had its its ups. It had its downs. But overall, it was a good experience. It taught me that all the years afterwards, when everybody come up and say, "Oh, there's going to be an outdoor music festival, and it's going to be bigger than Woodstock," we should go. And I would just look at him and say, "No, Woodstock was an accident. I am not going to." You're not going to even try to duplicate that accident. I don't want to duplicate the accident. It happened, and that's all there was to it. Right. And it's a life experience, one that you'll never get again.
0: And it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Mm-hmm. And we're so grateful to you for uh, taking some time to share some reminiscences about it with us. Lynn Van Eymeren, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.